So, good morning, everybody. It's Wednesday. It was a special uh, delight for me to sing that song, Mighty God, and see the name Dina L. Candler under that. This is the same woman that bugged my office at Jamestown College. (laughs) Now, that is living proof in our midst of redemption. Now, what you don't know is that um, that story I told you yesterday was the second of, the, of two times that she's bugged my office. You would think I would learn or that she would learn, but no, we haven't. The first time was when she was an intern with me at First Presbyterian Church, Colorado Springs. She snuck into my office and bugged it by putting these plastic things all over the place, but I didn't know that she had done this. I had a, that morning, I had a marriage counseling session, (laughs) and there was a couple in my office, and it was a particularly conflicted time, and they were going at each other, and the woman began to cry. She, She began to cry inconsolably, and I don't know what you do in a situation like that. You kind of wait to see if her spouse would make any movements to consolation. When that didn't happen, I decided to intervene. It was a moment of kind of intervention. So I reached for uh, my uh, box of uh, Kleenex, and I took it over to her. And she pulled one out, and there was a gross plastic bug in it. And it shocked her, and she shrieked. She screamed. And her husband looked, and then he looked at me, and he said, you did that on purpose. And all of a sudden, he had really been going at her. Now he was going at me, and he wanted to start to fight me. You know, you got to love your interns, but I was in trouble, and I did not want to fight this guy. He, he looked like he could handle his dukes, so I took the biblical, I made peace with my adversary as I was on the way, lest he send me to the bailiff and be put in jail, and I would not get out till I paid my last farthing. Thank you, Dina. Redemption. (laughs) Wonderful. I would like to encourage you to write songs um, (laughs) more than other things. (laughs) Yesterday, I talked about this first great generation. if, if, if uh, Tom Brokaw hadn't used that term, the greatest generation, I would like to use that uh, as the title of this book. It won't work, but it's, it's a more deserving title, not to put down the World War II generation, but it certainly is a more deserving title uh, for that first generation. I would like now to shift my emphasis in these presentations away from the the larger view, the mega view to a more micro view, and take three subjects that were essential to the church's growth in those first 75 years 
uh, four subjects, pardon me. The first one is going to be Christology, then second time today I'll talk about witness. Uh, tomorrow at this time I'll talk about discipleship, and then the fourth time I will talk about mission. These four elements were essential to the early church's growth in those first 75 years. Today about Christology. Uh, we all are familiar with the, the metaphor of, of the church as the body of Christ. It's a Pauline metaphor. It's certainly the most important metaphor that we have for the church. But it's, a, it's more than a metaphor, and I'm sure that you thought of that when I used that word. It's also a reality. It's worth just thinking about what body means, because the, the body is an organic whole. I think we all would parse out the, the various components of a person, mind, body, soul. We could put emotions in there. We can put other things. But we're aware that we have different components. We, we have a, a thinking agency. We also have an acting agency. But the relationship between those is profoundly organic. You can't just separate them. Uh, Paul could have used the image, say, of a horse and a rider, or a rider and a horse. And that would have differentiated much more, wouldn't it? The rider spurs the horse or reins the horse, and the horse responds. Now, that would have made the church kind of a, a, a work vessel. And, of course, Christ, the entire Lord. The body is much more organic. When I raise my arm, um, I'm not aware that my mind is sending a signal for my arm to raise. This is all happening as one action. And the body of Christ wants that oneness to come through. When I was writing my commentary on the Gospel of Luke, I was paying attention to how Luke works in Acts as well. Because we all know that the Luke-Acts prequel-sequel, two volumes, is the only example that we have among the Gospels of a writer who's writing a complete story of the first 65 years of the Christian movement. 30 with Jesus, and then another 35 uh, in the book of Acts, to the, to the end of Paul's life, or at least his going to Rome. And you want to pay attention on how Luke uses words in Acts and how he develops themes, because they help us to understand what they might mean in the Gospel of Luke. And I made a discovery uh, that's one of those happy discoveries, and that is that Luke, uh, on, a, on a dozen and a half, I counted about 18 instances, will tell a story or use a word or give a very distinct clue in the Gospel that he will then repeat or allude to unmistakably in the book of Acts. Now, these reports in the gospel are echoed in Acts by the church. Curious thing is that 
Uh, Three-quarters, actually more than that, about four-fifths of these reports, I'm thinking here of like a gunshot, a boom, that's the report, and then you wait a second or two for the echo, that echo in Acts. The report from Acts comes from the, the passion of Jesus. They're not taken from miracle stories, they're not taken from parables, they're not really taken very often from the Galilean ministry the life of Jesus, but rather from the passion. And I think in, in Luke's way, this is, uh, we are familiar in the uh, Protestant tradition of a, theolo- a, a theologia gloriae and a theologia crucis, a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. Luther, of course, has reminded the church that the theology of the cross is a better image and understanding of Christ and the church than a theology of glory. I think most of us would agree with that. I think this is Luke's way of saying amen. That it is from the passion of Christ that we see these echoes in the early church of Acts. And I want to look at those and then I'm going to try to pick up from the early church fathers in the apostolic period, uh, another echo, but they won't be quite as closely matched. So let's get into this, and so you actually can see this as a living laboratory. I'm going to read two passages. The first one comes from Luke chapter 20. It's in the Passion. The last week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem we all remember that Jesus goes to Jerusalem with the, uh, the triumphal entry, and in Luke it is a triumphal entry, not in Mark, not at all, um, but in Luke it's a triumphal entry. And then Jesus goes to the temple every day in Luke. Remember, Luke wants us to know that the temple is Jesus' home. In my father's house, Jesus recognizes this as a 12 years old. But his home has also been commandeered by um, the Sanhedrin that very much opposes Jesus. So the temple in Luke is both a place of Jesus' uh, settledness, but also a place where he faces opposition. Not an unhelpful image for us in the church today, because the church seems to be both places for many of us as well. And in Luke chapter 20, we find that the Sanhedrin comes up to Jesus. Remember, the Sanhedrin is the ruling body. It's this, it's this body that was established by the Romans. They were smart rulers. They didn't rule the ancient world uh, with all of its diversity, an area the size of the continental United States, ruled by a city, not a, not a, not a nation, a single city of Rome with a tremendous road system, a great communication system, a powerful army. They didn't rule that by being stupid. They ruled it by being very shrewd, and they realized that the Jewish people did not allow and would not allow a Gentile ruler to be over them. They would not accept that. And that if the Romans tried the direct rule approach, they would have incessant revolution. They said, fine. There's more than one way to slice a pie. They set up this buffer zone called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was 
was comprised primarily, not entirely, but primarily of people who were more than willing to do the bidding of Rome. They were the aristocracy, their upper class. The upper class, of course, always wants to keep the the conditions that brought them into existence in place. They're very conservative. This upper class belongs to the Sadducee party. Our congregations think of Sadducees and Pharisees as interchangeable. Nothing could be further from the truth. Sadducees and Pharisees didn't like one another. They were profoundly different. Jesus does not like the Sadducees. He never talks with them. Never once initiates a conversation with the Sadducees. Talks with them once when they ask him a question, but other than that, he doesn't deal with them at all. The Pharisees, he's constantly chasing them around the barn, and they, he, because they have a whole lot in common. Not with the Sadducees. So this Sanhedrin body, the Sadducees, comes up to Jesus and they want to pin his shoulders to the wall. Here we go. Luke chapter 20, verse 1. It happened in one of those days, one of those days of Holy Week. Um, While he was teaching the people in the temple, and the people are on Jesus' side. So there's... There's this struggle here for who will be heard by this people. Jesus wants them to hear him rather than the Sanhedrin. He was teaching the people and proclaiming the good news. The chief priests and the scribes, that's a reference to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had chief priests and scribes. They could be either Pharisees or Sadducees. Most of them were Pharisees. They approached Jesus along with the elders and they said to him, Tell us, in what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? There's the question. The word exousia is a very important word. It can mean, as I've translated it, authority. It could mean right. And it can mean power. It can mean legitimacy. It's the essential question. Who, in what authority, what makes you tick? It's it's not the kind of question we normally are asked, is it? We're asked questions like, what do you do? Well, I'm a professor. I'm a pastor. I'm a business person. I'm this or that. I'm a student. We are asked the question, why do you do it? Well, because I love scholarship. I love preaching. I love counseling, on and on. This isn't that question. This is one of those deeper questions. Who are you? And we're not asked that. Nobody's ever come up to me and said, who are you? I would think that's a weird question. But that's the question. And the second one, uh, how did it go? Yes. Um, Yes. In what authority do you do these things? And now, yeah, okay, I kind of get that. Here's the interesting one. Who gave you this authority? What's significant about that? Well, 
the Sanhedrin recognizes that Jesus is acting in authority that no human being could claim. It's not innate to him. It's not something with which he was born. They know that the authority has to have been conferred from an external source, and they want to know where. It's quite a question, is it not? And if you think about it, Jesus must be delighted by it because it is asking the kind of question, the answer of which will really get at who he is. Boy, this, this dog is on the scent of that raccoon and just about got it treed. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to them, let me put a question to you and tell me what you think. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it of humans? Now, from heaven is one of these divine passives. Was this of God? Jews didn't like to use the name of God for fear of profaning it. So this is the question. Was it God-given? That is to say, is it inspired? Or is this, was it simply a human convention? The Sanhedrin decided to um, uh, go into committee. <laughs> and they said to themselves... We're actually allowed into their thought process here, the listening device of the gospel in this committee meeting. If we say from heaven, that is to say, if we say, well, it's God-given, then he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? That's indeed what he will say. On the other hand, if we say it's from man, it's a human gift, well, the people will stone us because they... Received John as a prophet. The Sanhedrin's uh, caught between a rock and a hard place here. They're really in the classical dilemma. Either way they turn, they run off the road. So they claimed not to know. And that's the sorriest part of the story, because that's not true. It's precisely what they did know that they were unwilling to be responsible to. And so they think that they can avoid the dilemma by being untruthful. And this not the question, is the first and fatal tragedy in the story. And Jesus said to them, then neither will I tell you in what authority I do these things. That's the end of the story. It's a stunner, isn't it? Jesus is not nice. He's almost rude. He walks. We kind of say, couldn't you have 
mollified them with some small word of encouragement? And the answer is evidently no. I misread and misunderstood this story for decades. I always thought that um, when Jesus asked this counter question, tell me about John the Baptist, which obviously has nothing to do with their question, who are you, that it was an effort on his part to evade them, that they were trying to put him into a sakasa, into a dead end, and he didn't want to go, so he asks this question. He's like a dog that's being chased, or a raccoon that's being chased by the dog. What does it do? It jumps into the stream, runs 100 yards up the stream, and then jumps out so that the dogs can't, so it loses the dog's scent, or the dogs lose its scent. I just thought that's what this is, the versionary tactic. And then I got to thinking, did Jesus usually evade and divert, or did he actually try to engage people? And the answer is yes, the latter. He, he didn't try to evade. And so I revisited this thought about John the Baptist. What would that have to do with this? Maybe Jesus thinks that their question, in what authority did you do this and who gave you this authority, is such a good and profound question that he's going to ask them a counter question that would actually lead them to answer their question. Now that does sound like something Jesus would do. And I think it's what Jesus did. And what does John the Baptist have to do with Jesus' identity, people? Well, according to the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ begins with what event? The baptism of John. Remember when Judas defects, they need to choose a replacement, Acts chapter 1. They say, well, what would be the qualifications for a sub? What did they come up with, people? A person who what? Has to have been with us all the time from John until the ascension. So that teaches us that there were people that were with Jesus who are not mentioned among the 12 apostles. They come up with two people. They come up with a guy named Matthias, a guy named Justice. They flip a coin and it goes to Matthias. He's now one of the 12. It was at the baptism by John that the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus declares him to be my son in whom I am well pleased. And it is that point that Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit and he then moves into the world with his messianic exousia. Legitimacy, right, power. He doesn't do miracles before then, he does them after. He doesn't tell parables before them, he tells them after. He doesn't call disciples before then, he calls them after. He doesn't begin an itinerant ministry before then, he does it after. That baptism is the time of his messianic anointing, his declaration of being the Son of God. It is at that point that the saving significance of Jesus' life begins operative. Rather than being an evasion, this is a lob ball to the Sadducees, begging them, answer your own question. You've got all the means to do it. 
Some of you may have seen this, uh, this artist, I, I don't remember her name, you'll remember her name, who, who uh, paints pictures of, uh, of western scenes, uh, maybe a, a birch forest and some snow and some rock and some trees, and you look at the picture quite quickly and it's, that's all you see, and it's, it's quite pretty. But then when you look at it again, um, you will see that there's actually, in among this, this, uh, this nice uh, bucolic setting, an Indian riding a horse. What is it? Yes, do little, right? Yes, that, thank you for, for that. And so this, the, the, the spots on the Appaloosa horse camouflage in and, and the, the, the feather in the Indian um, the Amerindian looks like a leaf or some bark, and boy, there it is. And Jesus is saying, look at the baptism of John. It's just like that Doolittle painting. And don't just see the trees. See the Son of God. And the Sanhedrin is unwilling to see that, and so they miss their opportunity to confess Christ. And that's a big missed opportunity. Now, uh, I think Luke wants to suggest it's a missed opportunity because look at chapter 4 of Acts. Now, I'm going to read this, and then I want you to help me by identifying... the points in common that might have caused Luke to retell this story. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. This is a story of Peter and John. They healed a man in the temple. And we pick it up in verse 4. While they were speaking to the people, uh, Peter and John began to preach to the people after this miraculous healing. The priests and the temple guard approached them along with the Sadducees. And they were very distressed because the disciples were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus the resurrection from the dead had taken place. The temple guard laid their hands upon the disciples and they put them into prison until the next day, since it was evening. Many people who had heard the word believed, and the number of those believed became 5,000. Now, on the next day, the rulers, along with the elders and the scribes, gathered together in Jerusalem. Among them was Annas, the chief priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and those who were of the chief priestly family. This is an interesting point. Luke is often considered this Gentile author. I'm not at all sure he was a Gentile. Um, but Luke pays more attention to Jewish particulars than any other New Testament writer. And here he's giving us uh, an entire registry of the Sanhedrin and of the chief priests. Annas is the chief leader, he has 
four sons and one son-in-law who become chief priests. So altogether, that's six members, Annas, Caiaphas, and four sons, who dominate that chief priesthood in the first century. So this is a powerful group. Luke knows their names, and he gives us their genealogy. They stood, they stood them in the midst, and they asked them, Sanhedrin stands the Peter and John in their midst, and they ask him, in what power or in what name are you doing these things? Virtually the same question that's asked of Jesus. Now asked of the apostles. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if today we are being examined because of a good deed of healing a man, then let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that it is in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, in this one, Jesus, this man stands healed before you. This one, that's a reference to Jesus, is the stone that was rejected by the builders but has in fact become the chief cornerstone. Now that is a quintessential messianic text from the Old Testament. Peter is simply using a messianic image there that the Sanhedrin could not have missed. But now he's going to add his own testimony. Verse 12. There is no other name by which salvation given under heaven by which salvation can be given among men by which they can be saved than the name of Jesus. This absolutely clear testimony. Now, let's just take a minute and Review. I want you to shout out here what similarities exist between the questioning of Jesus and the questioning of Peter and John that Luke gives us as clues that he wants us to see this story in Acts 4 as a fulfillment of the story in Luke 20. What do you see in common? Same people asking the question. Who are those people? Sanhedrin. Their same idea of what's the authority? What's the legitimacy? What makes you guys tick? Absolutely. There, uh, there is a, certainly a healing in the second one, and there have been in the first. Uh, Jesus, of course, has done healings in the first one, too. The reference to the Holy Spirit. The 
Yes, good, good. That the spirit, the filling of of uh, Peter and John by the Spirit, and then Jesus and the Holy Spirit as well. Um, it's also in the same place. The temple once again is the scene. What's Luke doing here? He seems to be suggesting to us that the church, in fact, is this organic body of Christ that is fulfilling in its call the example that Jesus sets for it. Now, if we said, what's different about the Acts story from the Luke story, the, the significant point would be what? The answer. the answer. The tragedy of the Luke story is what? The answer is left unsaid. This is the saving truth. And the beauty of the Acts story is that Peter gets this lob ball once again in which he said, he begins by saying, let it be known to you that it is in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. True, you crucified him, but God got even. God raised him from the dead. God gets the last word here. The humans get the penultimate word, but not the last word. It's a good thing for us to remember in our world today. When this world is going freaking crazy in some places. And we just think, oh my goodness. Looks like chaos is breaking loose. Well, it very well may be. But remember, it's the penultimate word. It's the second word. God gives that to us, but he doesn't give the final word. And Peter says, there is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved than this name, Jesus of Nazareth. That is the clearest and most profound testimony to Jesus Christ in the book of Acts. Now I want to come into the early church and read a text from Ignatius that obviously it doesn't use this in what authority because Ignatius is not attuned to this. But we see once again this emphasis upon Jesus of Nazareth. This comes from a book, you probably haven't read it, called The Trollians, or at least very often, by Ignatius. Uh, incidentally, I've re referred to the Apostolic Fathers. If you are interested in getting a, uh, a modest-sized book that has all of them in it, it's by Michael Holmes, The Apostolic Fathers, Greek Texts and English Translations. It's a diglot. Greek on the left, English on the right. So actually, you can read the whole book by just reading every other page. Um, um, I like that. Um, and it's, it's a great uh, exposure to all of the writings that we know of that take place in that first 75 years, maybe even the first 100 years. So here's the Trollians. Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch, he writes these letters to these seven villages. He's like Paul. He's like John. He not only brings these or helps nurture these, but he realizes that a way to create strong communities is to provide literature that they can refer to, teach among themselves, and uh, be strengthened by. Here we go, chapter 9. This is what Ignatius said. I want you to be deaf whenever anyone speaks to you in the church apart from Jesus Christ. Hmm. 
Now, Ignatius wouldn't have said that unless what? People were actually preaching in the church some other gospel. Let's not glorify the ancient church, the early church, as though this was Shangri-La. It wasn't. They had struggles that probably we would not want to exchange ours for. We might want to exchange some of them, but not all. Be deaf whenever anyone in the church speaks to you apart from Jesus Christ. For Jesus was of the family of David. He was the son of Mary. He was really born. And you're going to see this word really. The word is aletheos. You could also use the word truly. And maybe truly is better. But it's a little, it's a little more holy. And I want to go for really. Um, he really was born... He both ate and drank. He really was persecuted under Pontius Pilate. He really was crucified and died while those in heaven and on earth and under the earth looked on. You are starting to see here already some echoes of this Roman symbol, the Apostles' Creed, aren't we? There are some facts that Ignatius says we really need to keep in mind that have to be told whenever we're going to tell the story of Christ because they are essential to a proper understanding. Who moreover was really raised from the dead when his father raised him up. That's really subtle. Jesus didn't raise himself. If he was truly dead, a dead person can't do anything. And the scriptures are always right here. Jesus was raised by the Father. It's not a resuscitation. We have a terrible story in Spokane about a dog that got hit, left off to the side of the road, somebody came by, saw that the dog was too badly hurt to live, hit it on the head with a hammer, and buried it. And the dog wasn't dead. It resuscitated and dug its way out. And is, got, is alive again. And is on the front page of the Spokesman Reviews looking for a home. Got 500 people want to take it. Yeah. They, yeah, what are we going to call him? Lazarus. Yeah. Or Easter. I mean, there'd be lots of good names for that. So, this, Jesus isn't like this. It's not this miraculous uh, near death experience. He's raised by the Father. Now, in the same way, the Father who raised Jesus Christ will also raise up in Christ Jesus those of us who believe in him, for apart from him we have no true life. Oh, I like that. That's good theology. That the same God who was active in the historical reference of Jesus, and of course, Antioch, or, uh, Ignatius goes through this to make sure we have those historical uh, handholds, but this isn't just a history lesson. Now we come to exhortation. Now we come to proclamation. Now we come to conviction. Do you believe that the God who did this in Jesus Christ can in the gospel do the same for you? 
And this is the difference between preaching and teaching. In teaching, all I have to do is to get people to see and believe the truth. In preaching, you have to do that, and then you have to say, are you willing to commit your life to it? Teachers want information. Preachers want conviction and transformation. Preaching is far harder. And it's far more important. That's preaching. Now let me just um, close today by asking some questions. I'm asking questions here. Is Christ central to the industry of the church that you and I are a part of? And the reason I ask that question and the reason that I accentuate these texts is because I'm nervous of some things I see in the church. The church that I'm aware that I'm a member of has just taken a large church survey. Eight page questionnaire that can take online and takes between 30 and 45 minutes to take. It's fairly significant exercise expected of the whole church. So I took this. The first question uh, was, do you feel welcome by the church? And for another eight pages, a series of these questions are asked that basically uh, want to take the temperature of the church as a receiving, warm, welcoming community. And when I completed the questionnaire, I was amazed not at the questions that were asked, but by what was not asked. There was not one question about preaching, about education, about does your church have spiritual vitality? Is the creed being dealt with faithfully? Is scripture foundational to the ministry? The questionnaire read like one of those questionnaires we get about consumer satisfaction. When I take my Honda to get service, they insist that I fill out a questionnaire. Was it, did you have to wait too long? Was the work done kindly? Was the person in charge friendly? All of these questions are not about whether my car was dealt with well at all. How would I know? That's why I took it to you. I didn't look under the hood. <laughs> it's all about, was the coffee fresh? And were people friendly? And did you get out of here in time so you could get on with your life? It's customer satisfaction. Is that what the church is about, my friends? This really scares me. 
Two weeks ago, I was in Germany. It was a Palm Sunday. It was the week before Palm Sunday. And I went to a Lutheran church. The bells were ringing and I went. And two women had a dialogue sermon among themselves. They made no attempt whatsoever to involve us in the congregation about a new creed that they should write. And the creed was a renovation of the Apostles' Creed in which it was to both me and God, God and humans, that we could be confident in ourselves. It was a creed about humanity rather than about Jesus Christ. The week after I got back, I went to another church that had, in the States, Spokane, that had a Celtic service that wanted to talk about creation and the power of both God and man to bring new life into existence. In both of these services, one in Germany, one in Spokane, we actually had a binity instead of a trinity. And the binity was not God and the, or the Father and the Son. It was who? It was God and me. God and humanity. Is this the gospel? We are seeing a strong tendency in the church today to reduce the gospel to something akin to Stoicism. Stoicism is a marvelous philosophy. But it is only a philosophy. And it's a philosophy about the management of the human soul. It's about the achievement of a healthy mental state by an act of the will. I hear this a lot in the church today. Righteousness is conceived in the terms of wellness. Redemption is conceived in the terms of recovery. Worship is conceived of in the terms of comfort. What mollifies and comforts me and sanctification in the terms of self-help. If there's any truth in this trend, it's an alarming truth because it means that humanity is now being shifted into the epicenter and Christ is being shoved to the periphery. The question becomes a basic one. Am I as a human being a creature of un tapped divine possibilities that can in fact be harvested and unleashed through various forms of wisdom and practices and inner light. And if that is so, and that is exactly what Epictetus and, and uh, Cicero and the Stoics would say, then I don't need Jesus Christ. There is one name given under heaven by which all people can be saved. I don't need that. 
Or is Jesus Christ my only hope in life and death? The first article of Heidelberg sets us straight. You probably know it. I'm going to read it phrase by phrase, and I want you to repeat it. Stand up. I'll ask the question, and then I want you to repeat. What is your only hope in life and death that I belong, body and soul, in life and death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Christ Jesus, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil, that he betrects me so well that at the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that thing must fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Amen. Be seated. We have, uh, we have seven minutes of conversation on Christology. Bill. Jim, have you heard the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism? <laughs> right, it's, uh, I have. Do you find that work helpful in understanding this uh, misbegotten uh, movement in the church? Right. Now that you've got the uh, microphone, say the three terms again. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Right. Mouthful. Now, this is Christian Smith, right? Yes. Right. Now, he's written a book um, uh, about... Um, he's looked at the youth culture, and he's asked the question... Um, what are we teaching them? And this is so interesting because last night, uh, Carol was, this was depressing, but um, going through Noah and reading probably six or eight or ten books, and they all, they all ascribe something to Noah that the text doesn't ascribe, right? That Noah's good, that he's good, he's a good guy. And Carol helped us to see that finding favor is a, a section of Hebrew circumlocution for God acting graciously. And there's a big difference between God acting graciously uh, than my being good and somehow meriting that. I like Carol's point that covenant is due to obligation, but grace is due to God's freedom. That's a beautiful... Um, distinction. And Smith has made this point that basically we're teaching 
What, what's, that we're teaching young people what? That God exists, but is not that closely connected unless we uh, put our quarter in the cosmic vending machine to get our little candy out. Right. And that uh, the goal of Christianity is for us to feel good about ourselves, and it's, it's ministry, it's therapy. That's stoicism. Stoicism is a lot easier to say than moralistic, therapeutic. What was the other one? Deism. Right. Yeah, there, but you see, deism does makes God back again to Carol into what? An idol. God, the deistic God is a wonderful God because He answers all of my intellectual questions, but makes no moral demands on me. I like that. Yes, I think that um, those are awfully big terms. How current and fluent ours are going to be, I don't know. But the point, I think, is a good one. We always want to make God in our image. And boy, that is very strong in the church today. So you use the, the hockey analogy of being pushed to the side. Right. Right, I use this illustration of Jesus being pushed to the, to the side today, and um, I don't mean to suggest a relationship between that. Uh, I did suggest yesterday that from this liminal area, from the sides, we, we play a pretty good game as Christians. We have a good history, at least, of playing a good game. We have our best voices come from the side. All martyrs' voices come from the side. Most of our great theologians, my friend Adam Nieder, teaches a course called The Three Outsiders. Theologians that weren't taken seriously in their day. Guess who they are? Karl Barth, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Soren Kierkegaard. Whoa! They were outsiders. They were. They just happened to be better than anybody inside. That's why we think of them today as insiders. They weren't. We have a wonderful tradition of playing from the side. Now, when Jesus is moved to, moved to the periphery of the church, that's not a good thing. Jesus belongs here, not there. He belongs in the creed. He belongs in the sermons. He belongs in the, in the hymns. And he belongs in, as, the, as the motivating factor of all of our uh, societies and communities in the church. All we do. It's the church of Jesus Christ. It's not the church of self-help. So that was just a coincidence I used that. Yes? It's Mark, but not Luke. But it's still, I think, in the same context. It says the first chapter, it says immediately seven times. And it says that Jesus, the kingdom of God, is at hand. There's an immediacy of Jesus. And I think what you've been talking about this morning, it struck me that that line right at the beginning of Acts where it says, and these are the things that Jesus began to do and to teach in Luke. And basically we're seeing Jesus, you know, in Peter's proclamation. We're seeing Jesus at the stoning of Stephen. We're seeing Jesus at the call of, of Paul. So it, it seems to me that moving Jesus aside is exactly what the, what the evil one would want, where Jesus is at the center, he's immediate and at hand. Amen. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, 
appreciate, can't tell you how much I appreciate <laughs> what you're saying. A little quibble, though. Um, in terms of resurrection, having read a lot, or a little bit, at least, of T.F. Torrance, there's, he mentions in Atonement you know, the, the, both the active and passive resurrection. And while you mentioned the passive resurrection, is there not also an active resurrection? Because there are times where Jesus says, destroy this, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up. So he is both active as you know, the divine son and maybe passive in his humanity. I'm not sure what the importance of that is, but I think there's both. I mean, it's just not that consistent in scripture. There, you, you find both. There's an active resurrection and there's a passive resurrection. Not just the father who raises him. He raises himself or at least takes some credit. Could you um, say more? Not much. Uh, that's true. This is uh, an active metaphor. It probably does refer to the resurrected body, but it's a metaphor nevertheless. The only place I'm aware of where Jesus speaks actively that he will raise himself is in John 10, where he says, I, I lay down my life and I will take it up again. Now that's clearly active. It's the only place I know where we hear him saying that I will take it up. Whereas in almost all the New Testament creeds and this word, if you look up the word agero, it will with resurrection of Jesus, almost always appear in a passive voice. The word anistemi, to arise, is not very often used. The word anesthesis for a resurrection is used. But um, I think we're on pretty good uh, philological grounds to say that this passive voice is certainly the preferred, and theologically speaking, the most defensible issue there, or the defensible way to look at it. It really does attest to the dead, doesn't it? A, a dead, when we, we all are aware, when we see a dead person, that, man, that, 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 we don't, can't call it a person anymore. That corpse can't do anything. Um, so that's important for us to confess. But how God did it, I'm not so concerned about that God did it. I'm going to preach. Good. Yes, yes. I agree and love what you said yesterday about kerygma and ethic and that those have to be true. The struggle and question I have is that it seems across the breadth of the church from left, right, and center, everybody believes that they're preaching the right kerygma and the right ethic, that what their message is is in some way faithful to the real Jesus, the essence of the early church. And so how do we know that our kerygma and our ethic really is of that first 75 years? Right, that's a great question, and I actually have an answer to this one, thanks. And I, <laughs> I planted it. Um, it doesn't make any difference, Mark Patterson, what you believe. <laughs> and it doesn't make any difference what I believe. That's why we have the creed. That's why we have scripture. That's why we have the tradition. That's why, and I'm going to say this, Again, I believe in every one of our church services today, we should say the creed every Sunday. Why? Because the creed reminds us that the gospel is not my invention. You have a PhD, you're a bright boy, I'm sure you can get it pretty right, but you are not the commander of the gospel, and neither am I. That which I received, I pass on to you. What is a pastor? What is a good proclamation? It is an authentic, sensitive, faithful 
transmission of the message once received. The gauge of orthodoxy is not us. It's the creedal tradition of the church. We must find ways of incorporating that into the worship experience. It really will change worship from comfort to inspiration, strength, conviction, transformation. No. Well, okay. <laughs> oh, that's great. God, I love you. Noel said his is collapsed into did you say human thriving? Yes. Yeah. And though the purpose of the gospel is for me to be happy for us to thrive, right? This is eternal life. That you will thrive. And Noel said, that's Epicureanism. I'm quite sure that Epicureanism uh, is equally strong with Stoicism. Okay, all right. Is that a quick question or comment? Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Uh, your comments about you know, worship and the comfort reminds me of a music director I worked with. He said, Doug, you preach the gospel. You're, you're kind of doing your therapy thing. So anyway, why, 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 do, why have we moved into that uh, in the church to focus more on well-being, wellness, uh, what my music guy called uh, therapy. What what happened? Why was that? I, I think I know reasons for me why I slip into that. But is it that the gospel was preached in a, too much of a judgmental way, or what? How did we get here? Oh boy, that's a great question. Let's just think about that. Um, and you, uh huh? We're trying to make it practical. Uh, we live in a therapy culture. Boy, who, who are the high priests in our culture today? Well, okay, they are. But um, the less well-known high priests, they're the therapists. Counseling. Okay. Um, I see this at Whitworth. Whitworth is a premier Christian institution. We have, um, we have far more students who, who see a life of service to humanity viable through counseling and, and clinical uh, counseling and service than they do through ministry. And so when we have this profound hegemony of psychology and sociology, we are, we are then going to have to take over or at least encounter their vocabulary and their categories. One thing to respond to them Another thing to what Noel said, be, how do you say, be absorbed by or something? Collapsed, Collapsed into. Let's uh, bow in prayer here. Uh, gracious God, we thank you for Luke, who reminds us that the report of Jesus is echoed in the body of Christ, us the church. And we know that echo is still taking place today. 
may we allow you as our Lord so to infuse us as your servants that we may be your hands and feet and your voice, your heart, and your mind. In Christ's name, amen.